And we're actually going to stand together for the reading of God's Word. I have kind of a long passage today, so just hang in there with me. And at the end, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond with, thanks be to God. This is uh, Luke 4.14, no, just kidding. It's Luke 4.14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to, the, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath to the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you can be seated. Kendra, that was long, but you did awesome. Thank you. Hey, it's really good to be with you this morning. Um, my name's Adam. I'm part of the teaching team here at Mosaic. And just a big welcome to everyone here in this space and uh, everyone who's, who's watching online. Super Bowl Sunday today, Valentine's Day tomorrow. We got a lot of eating to do the next few days. It's going to be great. Um, hey, I'm excited to be with you and to be looking at this specific text um, that was just read. It's a very significant text, and we're going to be walking through it today. And one of the things that, that, that I hope we're walking away from this text with is the answer to this question that comes up many, many times in our lives over and over and over is simply this, who is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And, and today we're going to to read a statement that he makes about himself that is, that is beautiful and profound. Um, and so before we dive in, I want to take a moment just, just to pray over us. Father, as we, uh, as we open your word, um, we know that your word is transformational and powerful, that it speaks to us, um, that it brings clarity and revelation about who you are. And I ask that that would be the case today uh, for all of us in this place or online or listening at a different time, that we would be captivated by your words and that we would be transformed by the power of your spirit. So we thank you for this day. 
and we choose to give you our full attention and to listen to your words and to listen to your spirit. And we thank you in your name. Amen. I have a, a hometown. Some of you might also have a hometown, or maybe you're from multiple places, but I, I have a very specific hometown that I'm from, and it's, it's not very big, about 3,500 people in the middle of nowhere, and I spent uh, ages 3 to 18, so I moved away for college, in this small town. Now, something happens when you grow up in a small town like this. Um, you you kind of know everyone, and everyone knows you. And they know you more than you would like for them to know you. <laughs> you end up having the same conversations with the same people, doing the same things day after day. And it's, it's absolutely my hometown, but there was a, a point where I, I finished high school and I, I moved away to college to a city. They had stoplights, restaurants that stayed up af or open after 8 p.m. It was mind-blowing to me. Um, and it was a great experience, and I spent my first semester in college in this huge city that just felt so massive to me, and I remember coming back home for Christmas, and my town just felt different. It suddenly seemed really small. It, it, it suddenly seemed overly predictable and a, a little bit boring, and in all the ways that it seemed different to me, I didn't seem different to my hometown. I was still the same kid, the same expectations, the same stories, the same horrible, horrible nickname that I was given that if I go back there today at 40, they still call me this nickname. I'm not going to tell you what it is because then I'm afraid you'll call me this nickname. And don't ask my wife because she'll probably tell you. Um, when I went back, I saw the town different. It didn't see me different. I was commonplace in that town and probably will be for the rest of my life. The story that, that we just heard and that, that we're going to be walking through is the story of, of Jesus returning to his hometown and he's returning with a purpose. He's beginning his ministry. He's kind of going public with, with who he's called to be and what God has asked him to do. And he chooses to do this in a synagogue in his hometown. So let's, let's look at these words. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. Or if you have your Bible app, turn there. Um, it's going to be on the screens as well. But I want to walk through some of these statements that Jesus makes and some of the ways that that the listeners in this synagogue respond, and what the implications are for you and I. It begins in 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogue, and everyone praised him. Now, let's, let's back up. We remember we're in this series, Teaching Through the Book of Luke, Teaching Through the Book of Acts. Both of these were written by the same person, and they're written to a person named Theophilus. It's telling the story of Jesus. And in Acts, it'll be telling the story of, of the New Testament church. And, and as he, Luke is beginning this story about Jesus returning to his hometown to proclaim who he is, he begins by telling us two really important things about Jesus. One, he's teaching a new message. And he's teaching it with authority and demonstrations of power. That he's, he's, he's not just caught up in, in, in teaching his opinion or, or teaching thoughts of the day or, or, or giving his political persuasions, but he is teaching this new message with authority and demonstrations of power. We can read this, this same account through a, through a different lens in the book of Mark. Um, it says this in 127, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. 
News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Jesus has arrived, and he's teaching this new message of repentance and new life. And he's teaching it, not from opinion, but with complete authority. Man, I have learned to really grow to value voices of authority in my life. Now, it might sound countercultural, especially in our setting, in our city, that might feel very countercultural, but, but a true authority, someone who has experience in truth and can speak into something with authority. I have this really good friend of mine um, who is a, a pharmacist, and I love to hear him tell his stories about his practice of pharmacy and just the crazy things that he sees, people who come in and show him rashes and things that he's like, I don't want to see that, please don't. Um, but one of the things that he's told me as he's talked about his practice, he said, the worst invention of humankind, the absolute worst thing that we ever created was WebMD. If you don't know WebMD, it's a place on the internet that you can go when you're not feeling well. And this is usually how it happens. I have a headache, not feeling so good. I go onto WebMD, I look at my symptoms, and it tells me I have the black plague. That's, that's usually how WebMD works. And, and he told me in his practice, he'll have these people come and they'll have read a brief article and they're ready to instruct him, this, this doctor, this authority on medicine who spent years and years in his practice studying in school. And, and, and they come and, and they, they bring their opinion and it's, it's not the same as his voice as an authority, right? Jesus brings to these people something that is needed. He brings something to you and I that is needed. He brings his voice of clarity and authority. He speaks truth, and he invites us through this authority, authority into new life. Luke wants Theophilus to know that. He wants us to know that, that, that Je this Jesus is teaching this new message of authority and power, and he is being led by the Holy Spirit. This is a theme that will come up over and over again in the book of Luke, is this relationship between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And I love that it comes up over and over, and I, I make mention of it today because it is an example of how then you and I get to be in community with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. He goes to the synagogue, and, and he sits with them, and then it's time he stands to read, and they hand him the book of Isaiah, and we don't know if if that was already the plan, if he asked for the book of Isaiah or if the Holy Spirit ordained it, but it was just the right book because Jesus then turns and reads this prophecy about himself. In 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And they began saying, today, and he began by saying, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I love drama in scripture like this. What an amazing, I mean, like, I, I want to make this movie. This, this guy gets up. He's from this hometown. They know him. They had spent decades with him. He gets up, he chooses to read this prophecy that they would have known. They would have known these words well. At this point, this prophecy is over 700 years old. They're longing for this prophecy to be fulfilled. They're waiting for it, desperately waiting for their nation to be restored. Jesus stands up, he reads it, sits down, and says, By the way, 
this prophecy was just fulfilled. Mic drop. It's just this amazing moment. And, and, and as I visualize it, it says that their eyes are all fixed on him. And I would just imagine you could hear a pin drop, right? Did, did he just say what I think he said? Did he, did he say that that's him? He's the one. He's the, the one bringing the, the good news to the poor, binding up the broken spires to set the prisoner free. He's that guy. In hearing these words, this prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus makes clear with authority what he has come to do and who he is and that he is empowered by God to do this. One amazing moment um, to, to, to just put myself in that setting, in that synagogue, listening to Jesus pro, uh, proclaim with authority, this is what God has called me to do. And today, in the reading of these words, this prophecy is fulfilled. In, in Greek, there's a few words for time, one, one being chronos, kind of is talking about chronological time, yesterday, today, tomorrow. There's another word called kairos. It's talking about a single moment. This, this single moment is a kairos moment where Jesus says, this, this scripture, this, this prophecy is talking about me. I am the one who is going to bring freedom to the captives, who's going to bind up the brokenhearted. And it's at this point in the story where, where things begin to turn a little bit. It goes on in, in verse 22, it said, that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, now we don't know why he's saying this, what his motivation is. Is, is it intuitive that, that he knows their hearts are actually pretty cynical and jaded? Is it the Holy Spirit revealing their hearts or is it that he just spent three decades with these guys and he knows that some of them are bums, but, but for whatever reason, he gets ahead of the words that they're about to say and he says them for them. He says, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do hear in your hometown what you did, that you did in Copernicum. So he gets out ahead of them and says, no, 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 wait, wait, I know what you're about to say. You're about to say, hey, physician, heal yourself, take care of yourself. You, you, you say you have this authority, you say you're doing these things, but, but our nation is still under control of a different nation. They were conquered by Rome, they were controlled by Rome, and they longed to be reunited as a physical nation, to rebuild their temple and to reestablish themselves. Jesus hadn't done that. They looked at him and said, hey, you're, you're no different than us. Your nation is still under control of a different nation. You say these things, prove them to us. We see this cynicism in the presence of the Son of God, the cynicism of heart to not believe, and the effects of cynicism on our faith to lead us into doubt, to lead us into questioning. And I think it, it, it's important to, to kind of sit with this story because we can see people who are in the presence of God, who recognize Jesus' authority, who have heard the stories, yet even with all of that can reject him. I think this story also points to the humanity of Jesus. I know for much of my, my time as a, as a Jesus follower, as I imagined Jesus in these settings in the New Testament, it was almost as if he kind of like levitated around, floating around, teaching these beautiful words with just this lush glow coming off of him. It's like some of the pictures I've seen as a kid, you know, and, and, and in actuality, he was, he was very human. They, they didn't recognize him. They saw right past him. Listen to these words in, in uh, Philippians. 
This is Philippians chapter 2. It says this about Jesus. Starting in verse 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Here's his demeanor. Here's the Jesus that they saw in the synagogue, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The listeners in this synagogue were waiting for their champion, for the person who was head and shoulders above everyone, who would bring and command a mighty army, who would restore what they were given was a servant who offered relationship, who offered a repentance that led to new life. This is Jesus. He goes on further in this next piece, these next few verses, he begins with the phrase, truly I tell you. And when we read that in scripture, we know that something profound is about to be said. Something is about to be said with authority. He says this in 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel who had leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleaned, only Naaman, the Syrian. These two stories that, that, that he begins with about these two prophets that you can read about in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And, and these prophets would have been championed in their lineage, and, and they would have known about these two prophets. And he tells a story of, of Elijah during a drought that God sends him to this widow, and, and, and he asks this widow for something to drink. And he asks this widow for something to eat, and it's, it's a three-and-a-half-year drought, and, and she's down to a last little bit of oil, a last little bit of flour, and she tells Elijah, I'm going to prepare this for myself and my son. We're going to eat this, and then we're going to die because there's nothing for us. And God sent Elijah, and Elijah said, Make me something and make yourself something as you said, but fear not, for God will provide for you. This amazing miracle happens where her vat of oil never empties and her flour never goes away. It keeps replenishing itself and restoring. It's this amazing story of God's provision to this widow. And, And the next story is Elisha and and, and, and this general, Naaman, finds him. He's a commander of an army. He finds him, and he's, he has leprosy. And, and Elisha tells him, go to the Jordan and dip seven times into this river. And, and when he does, God heals him and restores him. And it's this beautiful story. But, but we know the listeners in the synagogue get furious with this story to the point that, that when he's done, they, they drag him out of the synagogue, lead him up to a cliff to throw him off. That's like old-school cancel culture. Like, <laughs> You just said this. We're not going to tolerate it. We're going to drag you out of here. We're going to take you off to this cliff, and we're going to throw you. Why did they respond this way? Because both of these stories, the widow that Elijah goes to and Naaman, they're outsiders. They're not part of this nation. Jesus has chosen to use examples where God is faithful to someone else where God uses his prophets to bring sustenance, healing, and life 
to the outsider. This story, it leads us to consider, to know two very specific things. One, this story is a foreshadowing that Jesus is giving about his kingdom, who his kingdom's for, what his kingdom looks like. He is making it clear that no one people, no one nation, no one culture, one race, one group, one anyone owns the kingdom of God. It is as wildly diverse as possible. He has invited all humanity into his kingdom. His mission was not for a people to reestablish a nation, but for all nations. And what's, what's so, somewhat ironic is this was actually the, the plan from the beginning of even this nation. It begins with a man named, named Abraham, who the people in this synagogue would have said, we are our, our descendants of Abraham. He is our father. He is the beginning of this nation. And, and, and Abraham is unique because he has this, this promise given to him by God. And we read about it in, in Genesis 12, 1. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country to the people of your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's Jesus. This is God's faithfulness promised to Abraham years and years later, fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. His kingdom is for all peoples. Wildly, wildly diverse. I have a, a friend who some of you, um, if you've been around Mosaic a while, you might remember him. He was part of a team teaching that we did uh, this, this past year. He is a pastor uh, of a church in, in Beaverton. And the story of this church is pretty unique. It was actually two uh, separate congregations, um, one that was uh, a, pri a primarily white church and one that was um, a church for first and second generation um, Asian migrants. And uh, they, they had some kind of relationship together, and they decided, hey, let's, let's be one church. Let's be one community. And, and they called their church Common Ground. And it was a very inspired, unique part of their vision that we want to be diverse in every way, culturally, racially, social, economically, uh, from old to young, uh, men and women leading, and, and we're going to find this common place. And and Avery now has become their pastor, and uh, so he's at this church that was primarily white, primarily first and second generation Asian uh, together, and he's African American, and it's it's just this beautiful scene. I, I got to um, to lead their worship for a, a season for a number of years and journey with them through this process of of what they felt called to, that they uniquely felt called to to pursue diversity in the area of Beaverton that they live in. And in the story of, of getting to hear him talk about the process, I, I heard every say, hey, if, you're, if your culture, cultural preferences are not challenged and at times not set aside for the sake of others, you're probably nowhere near diversity. Now, Avery's fairly direct. I'll say it again. If, if your cultural preferences, kind of the things that, that, that I prefer, the things that I like, the ways that I like to do it, if those things aren't challenged and at times requiring me to set them aside for the sake of others, it probably doesn't look like diversity. I think that this is wildly challenging for us to consider what, 
What is God asking us at times to set aside for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of others? What preferences do I have that for the sake of the kingdom, God could ask me to set those aside? Because when I look at this story that Jesus is telling, his kingdom is not about a people, a group, a nation, a tribe. It's about the peoples of this earth. He's foreshadowing it in this story about these two prophets that he's telling, that God hasn't come for a people group, for a nation. He's come for us all. And that's really good news in Portland in 2022 for you and I. We get to be part of the family of God because of who Jesus is. It's a foreshadowing of his kingdom. And it's a call for you and I to align ourselves to his agenda, to Jesus's agenda, rather than to establish our own agenda and call it Jesus's. To not contour our beliefs about Jesus because of our own preferences, but rather to align ourselves to what Jesus is doing, who he is, and to follow in his footsteps. Even if that requires laying my culture, my preferences aside, to follow after him. I remember when um, I was in high school, there was this craze in youth group culture, church youth group culture, um, of these bracelets that said WWJD. Who, who remembers those? Who's wearing one here today? Just <laughs> curious. Okay. I, I had a few of these. Um, I had a few of these, and then I had a, a CTR ring, which is Choose the Right, um, which was for, uh, I, I lived in a, a very prominent Mormon um, community, and that was the ring that they wore, and I kept it in my truck in case I got pulled over. I'd be like, hello, officer, how are you doing? I don't know. What would Jesus do? That was the idea, right? And the idea would be that I would walk around as a teenager with all of these life choices in front of me, uh, the right choice, the wrong choice, and in any given situation, I would have this rubber bracelet that said, oh, yeah, that's right, this question, what would Jesus do? And it, it, it kind of became a cliche, right? It kind of got overly commercialized and, 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 and lost some of its potency, but it's actually a really beautiful question. To align my life by what, what would Jesus do? Because if I'm really honest, it's a little easier for me to say, this is how I see it, and so that's probably how Jesus sees it. These are my considerations. That's, that's probably what Jesus would. This, this is, these are my political views, so obviously Jesus agrees with me. Reorienting ourselves to align to Jesus rather than to align to our own preferences and say that this is also what Jesus wants. Think about the tragedy of this story. These people in the synagogue sitting, opening scripture with the Son of God. And because of their political and their nationalistic aspirations, they miss Jesus. Because for them, it has to look a certain way. God has to reestablish us as a people, as a nation, with our temple, and we're back in prominence. And because they were fixated on that as their idol, they miss Jesus. I read this, this commentary about this passage. Um, it's written by N.T. Wright in his book, Luke for Everyone. He says this, The message was and remained shocking. Jesus claimed to be reaching out with healing for all people. Jesus coupled this mes message with severe warnings to his own countrymen that unless they could see 
that this was the time for their God to be gracious unless they could abandon their futile dreams of a military victory over their national enemies, they would suffer defeat themselves at every level, military, political, and theological. The gospel, this message that Jesus brings, still does this today when it challenges all interests and agenda with the news of God's surpassing grace. This is the invitation that Jesus gives you and I. He wants to be our Lord, to align our, our lives to him. And I'll promise you, out of my own experience, and probably many of you would say the same, at times that's very challenging. At times that's very uncomfortable. At times what I prefer, what I want, has to be set aside because I'm aligning my heart towards Jesus. I don't want to miss what Jesus has for me. You don't want to miss what Jesus has for you. To have our eyes fixated on other idols, on other ways that we think that Jesus must fulfill his promises on our lives, and to find ourselves sitting in the presence of Jesus and missing him. The invitation for you and I as we hear these words, the cautionary tale is to pursue him, to know him through his words, to like him, pray, pray to our Father, to like him, be led by the Spirit of God, to know him. I'm going to invite our, our team up. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. The story continues. Um, they're furious with him. They, they bring him out to the edge of a cliff, dragging him out of the synagogue. And, and it's, it's, it's really kind of ironic because for the second time in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is at the edge of a cliff. We, we, heard, we learned last week that, that he was brought up on a, the edge of a cliff and tempted by Satan to throw himself down just to display God's faithfulness. And, and, and he's obedient and, and, and quotes scripture and, and does not uh, give in to this temptation. And again, he finds himself at the edge of a cliff. And this time his father is here to provide rescue. It says obscurely that he just walked away in the midst of them. I don't know if they were raptured in awe of finally they recognized who he was. I don't know if, if, if God just silenced them, but, but there was this mob of people dragging him to a cliff and he simply walks away. And he continues his ministry, his teaching, all the way to the cross to bring us freedom and salvation. If you've got your, your communion elements with you, uh, go ahead and open them up. If you're here, if you're, if you're watching from at home, um, go ahead and get communion elements that, that you have available to you. And, and we're going to take communion in just a moment. One of the things that happens when we worship and remember Jesus by taking communion is that we are saying, we are the poor that Jesus has brought the good news to. We are the brokenhearted. We are the captives. We are the prisoners who are set free by the very means that these communion supplies represent. Let me pray for us, and then let's take communion together. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you that they're life, that they're truth, and that they're authority. Thank you for these words from Isaiah that, that give us even more clarity to that question, who is Jesus? that we can see ourselves in this story as the people he has come to, to bring life and to bring freedom. And so today we, we, we take this communion worshiping you, 
for this reality. And we thank you and we love you. Amen. Let's take communion.